Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg with Altus Performance. And this week, we are going to go straight into a conversation that Cam and I had with one of our favorite coaches that we run into on the PJ Tour at events, Jamie Mulligan. Jamie is the coach to most notably Patrick Cantlay, along with a handful of other high performers. And he's just a really, really unique guy. You'll soon hear the mellow Southern California tone that makes him a really easy guy to get along with and to like and to listen. And he really does embody this surfer as golf coach vibe. And if you haven't heard of Jamie, despite him coaching one of the best players in the world, it's because he's not on social media. He doesn't really self-promote. He's just an amazing coach who is dedicated purely to helping this small group of players that he's been working with and developing since their early days in junior golf at his golf course in Southern California. And I think you'll quickly see just how special and unique of a guy that Jamie is in this conversation. We talked him into doing the pod just before dinner and he met with us and we just hit record and let him go. So I really think you'll enjoy it. Without further delay, here is episode 52 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Jamie Mulligan. Just for a little bit of context, tell them a little bit about where you are in Long Beach. And I think it's a pretty unique situation. Most tour coaches that we talk to on this podcast don't have the background that you do and don't have the, the extra set of responsibilities that you have. Yeah, thanks for that. I played a junior golf tournament. Uh, I grew up in Long Beach, California. I played a junior golf tournament in the middle 70s at Virginia Country Club. At this point, presently, it's a 110-year-old golf course that was Billy Bell and then redesigned by Tillinghouse. I started there as an assistant in the early 80s, and then I got my first head pro job after that and then worked at uh, as the head pro at both the public golf courses in the 80s, Rec Park and Skylings. Created. At the same time? Yeah. Hmm. Kind of worked back and forth between those as the head pro at both properties. And then we went over with Payne Stewart in the middle 90s and opened a golf course called Coyote Hills. It's the only golf course that he designed, which was a great experience with Payne. You know, special guy, great character, certainly very sad about what happened to him. And then in 2000, we went back, went back to Virginia and became the CEO. So we get to oversee this club. It's in Long Beach, which is about 20 miles south of L.A. in between, you know, kind of in between almost Newport and uh, L.A. perfectly. So that's yeah. that. Yeah. My follow-up. Can yeah, I go back? Sorry, yeah, All right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just interested in understanding the influence your dad had. He was in aerospace, yes? Correct. Yeah. And, and the engineering side and your desire to um, maybe if you weren't a golf coach, or, uh, yeah. a golf professional, how much is, was that influenced? Oh, man, he was a really special guy. He died when he was uh, when I was 19 years old, way too young. Mm. But, you know, you always think that your dad as you're growing up is your hero. And then you you get to the point when you're a teenager and you think, you know, everything. So he died <laughs> at a peculiar time in my life. But he was very bright. He had a great engineering mind. He was super positive. He was always knew the difference from right from wrong. He also was influencing me not to be fair or good, to try to be great at everything that you do. He, uh, you know, I want to play football in the NFL. I grew up, you know, as a surfer and still a surfer and wanted to play football or surfer, do something like that. And my dad realized that I had golf talent, you know, they got moved out to Palmdale to work on the shuttle in my middle teens and I remember my mom and my dad were in the next room and my dad was asking my mom how did he play today and my mom was saying well he had every green regulation 
my dad will go, well, he kind of hit any, every green and regulation. And my mom said, well, you know, I know golf better than you do. My mom was a pretty good player. <laughs> so the next morning went out and watched me play in the second hole on a five par. I hit it on there in two with an irony. He went like, oh my goodness, you know. And then it became the, he did a really nice job of talking me out of football and into golf. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Was there one conversation that stands out or something? No, he, he was said, great at that. He wouldn't have done that in that manner. He wouldn't have sat down and say, hey, you can't play football anymore. He yeah. just got to the point of make, being really practical, which is, you know, I think I have a good part of that practical part in me. And we do that a lot in our coaching. Let's be really practical. Yeah. Why you should turn down that road rather than go the road you're on. So when did the coaching begin? Mm, I think you coached from the get-go. I think I always talk to coaches and ask them how that, I think that I was the guy in my, you know, my little league team or my pop Warner team that was kind of looking around and going, Hey, maybe if you try to do this, it's going to work a little bit better. So I think it starts as a player first. And then I think either you have the eye or you don't have the eye. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I think you know this, but like in our delivery pitch position, when we teach and you know, you and I are standing on the range a lot next to each other. I like it when it's Sunday at the end of the day and there's only a couple groups out there. That's nice. the, that's the best yeah. time. Yeah. But anyways, I look back at my player rather than standing behind him to the side because I'm trusting my eye to see the way that that goes. And we were all able to do that. All able to watch somebody hit it and say, that's one yard cut or, you know, that ball's got too much spin on it or this or that without turning around. And I think you get that. I don't think you develop that. I've tried to develop that with a lot of coaches over time and, while you can make them better, either you see it or you don't see it. Yeah. And I want that to sound pretentious or presumptuous. It just is what it is. But surely along the way, there was cultivating that eye to see more and see at maybe higher resolution. Mm. So speak to that and maybe weave in the relationship with Cookie and then before that, Venturi and who, yeah. he, who his influences were, which was Hogan and Nelson. Yeah, 100%. Like, and that's a special time. But anyways, as far as just the eye and seeing it, I had a gentleman in town that gave me a bunch of money in Long Beach to go play. And I played a couple tournaments and he called me and told me if, um, one day if I played a little bit better, we would have made that much money and it didn't make sense to me. So I sent the check that for the money that he gave me back to him. Yeah. said, well, I don't want anybody to dictate my future. I want to do it on my own dime, which is kind of the way that we are. It's important. Mm -hmm. And so then I took the amount of money and started to raise that in coaching and teaching. And I decided I was going to go on tour because I had friends on tour without a player. So I really went on tour without a player. Now, granted, I was getting to spend a lot of time with John Cook and Mark O'Meara. And, you know, at that time it was the Hallberg, Fred Couples, kind of those guys who were going through. And Gary was really nice to me. I got to watch Hallberg hit some, but I really didn't have a player yet. Mm -hmm. So at that time, when you're watching golf, when you're not playing golf anymore and you're not trying to make a dollar making a lesson, you're just watching them and trying to learn, you'll learn a lot. And I learned a bunch in those three or four or five years. Mm -hmm. So I say that was not only... Not only that cultivate my eye a little bit more because you're seeing it at the highest level and at a different speed all the time, but it definitely helped me how we're going to play and how they're trying to play. And, you know, at that time, there it wasn't the power game that they play now. It was more of a control game. So I really took that into consideration. I was always trying to watch the 10 players in the world, which we still do too at this time, you know, today. And then John Cook, there's a great story about him. He, you know, he really didn't have a bunch of instruction. He learned how to play in the hill. He was a good athlete. His dad, Jim, ran golf tournaments. His dad had a relationship with Ken Venturi because of the motor racing world. And Ken loved cars. And John went down to see Ken when he was about 14 years old or 13 years old. And when he got there, Mr. Venturi came up in this nice little sports car and told John to go take the balls and knock them away from the fence at Mission Hills where he was the pro. And so... Ken didn't come out like for like two hours later and John just kept hitting the, hitting the balls away from the fence. And 
20 years or 30 years later, Ken told John that he had asked a bunch of kids to do that and nobody did that. So he didn't help him. And John was the one. So, you know, I love it. that's a good vetting process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Ken, he's a special guy and he was really, really gracious with me. He was not only gracious with me to teach me what he knew, but he was also gracious with me when I inherited John from him when Ken stopped going on the road. And, um, he learned from Hogan and Nelson. So, we got some unbelievable gold there, you know, when you're standing there in front of somebody and, you know, telling them what to do. And you can say, by the way, this is the way that Hogan liked the toe and, you know, in relation to the plane line, or this is the way that so-and-so liked the club, you know, it's, uh, it draws a lot of credibility. With the wisdom that you have now, and that's how I know you, I'm curious you know, we talk a little bit about how you develop as a coach, but looking back at those younger years on tour, what were the things that you would look back at and say, like, that make you cringe? That say, I can't believe I used to do that. That obviously now with the wisdom experience that you have now, I've separated you and, and you no longer make those rookie mistakes. I don't know if I any cringe or rookie mistakes to not sounding like we've done it perfect, but it definitely dictates what we live by, which is if you don't 100% know what you're saying, don't say it not throwing gum on the wall and hoping that it sticks, right. you know, it isn't. And I see that done so often. And, you know, I talked to a player for a long time in the airport today and he had, you know, two great teachers that are buddies and friends of mine. It's not going right from him. And they got to the point where they were throwing stuff on the wall. And I think that if you're a great coach, when it's done the right way and you see it, you go, wow, that's the way it should be done. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, but it's your job to decide that it's done the right way. And more importantly, they're the player. We all three have something in common. We're not hitting any shots on tour. <laughs> and when we really hit our best shots, you know, we know what it feels like for us, but they know at a higher level what it feels like for them. So if I don't know it a hundred percent, I don't say it anymore. I say if there's a criticism now with our players is we're not saying enough, but I said probably too much in the eighties, learned not to do that in the nineties and perfected that as in the millennium. <laughs> and does that go to the quote that I read in my evolution? I probably confused myself learning the technical part and how to decipher all that back out. You see things now the way you did maybe when you were 13 and just developing your own game. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, I think I've said before, you know, we're a surfer when you're surfing, you know, you're in the water, you see a wave coming, you paddle over to it. You kind of guess where you're supposed to take off. Mm -hmm. You bring up the speed of your paddling. You look for the pocket of the wave. You stand up and you go. If you think about any part of it, it doesn't work. Then all of a sudden you catch the wave and you surf and then you're done. You kick out of the wave and you're paddling back and you think, wow, that was great. That felt wonderful, you know, yeah. way better than a four iron. I've hold a four iron in front of 5,000 people. It's not as good as riding a wave. <laughs> I wish but I knew either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Australian. Yeah. I think, I think given that I don't surf, if it yeah. became like knowledge in the government, they'd revoke my Yeah, you're supposed yeah. to just yeah. act exactly. Like surf. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Just act like you do with the accent you can get away with the fact but 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 anyways i think there's that that part of it is kind of the same thing in golf right it's an intuitive feeling and you're trying to feel it and you know i got to the point where you read the golf machine and you know god bless him i spent some time with mac o'grady and he was wonderful with me and he explained kind of you know x's and o's to me probably better than anybody could and mm -hmm. You know, I have said this before in speaking, when we're speaking to our peers, is I probably have seen 10 different methods on tour go in and out of fashion now, where it's the next great thing from this is the way the club should be swaying or this is the way the body should be swaying. And there's really no one way to do it. It's whatever you think works best for somebody. And when you're watching the top 10 players in the world, they're really special and they're really unique and unique in the point that they're different in the way that they go about it and almost all the things that they do. 
we'll get back on the coaching kind of conversation here in just a second, but I wanted to go back and talk about surfing. What does surfing mean to you other than just being a, a hobby or a vocation? Yeah, it's, it's, far, it's right? far greater than that. Yeah, it's a spiritual or soulful connection with something that makes me not think about anything that I do. And I think, you know, we oversee a country club every day. We're responsible for a lot of things at that club in order to make sure it's great. It's in our, our, in our, you know, entire staff's mentality to make it great on a daily basis. You know, we work with tour players and the most, what would be the word, expectant people in the world. They want things yesterday and they want it to be done exactly the right thing. So there's a lot of pressure in both those situations. And surfing is the one release for me where, I can go out and as soon as, you know, I switch into my wetsuit or I put my board shorts on and walk out on the beach and see the wave and I don't think about anything until we're done. It's like a cleansing every time. It's hard to explain it. There's this expression, only a surfer knows the feeling. Only a surfer knows the feeling. Is there a yeah. wave pool or anything? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyways, that's that. And yeah. if there was a handicap in surfing, there isn't really one. So I don't know what it is. I just know that I enjoyed a lot of the handicap is how much I love it. I love it. I'm in love with golf. Yeah. I'm in love with our country club. I'm in love with, you know, my friends and family, but surfing I love. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. We talk a lot about players' superpowers, but we also talk about coaching superpowers and we read a lot about it as probably you do as well. If I was to toss the question at you, what do you feel like your coaching superpowers are? There's probably a few that you've already spoken to, economy of words being one of them. How would you answer that question? I think we understand that it's a macro game, not a micro game. And our developing is everything, mind, body, spirit. And I think that we want to be the best in the business at the 24 seven approach for the player, whatever they do makes them play the best that they got going. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I never criticize anything or anybody in our industry, but I think we got way into swing fixes and machines and we all get painted into this light that we don't like technology. I love technology. It's very helpful, but I also think at the point, a lot of time you're not going to run back there five minutes before your player's trying to win a major. And one of yours has and show them what they're doing on their machine or this and that, that doesn't matter. You got a better chance to make them laugh with a joke and uh, say, by the way, your pace looks really good. Have a good go out there. You know, is there a go-to joke? <laughs> no, never. I think you know me well enough. <laughs> also a different one. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I really like watching golf with you. You know, it's fun mm -hmm. to cruise around and watch, you know? Yeah. I feel like we're really lucky. We got, you know, two of the best kids in the world playing without doubt. Yeah. Would echo that sentiment. And they're close, they're buddies yeah. and we get to do practice rounds together. And, you know, I cherish those days and we've got to do it here and outside the country. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It, yeah. it most definitely is. I enjoy the time spending it with, with Patrick or any of your players for that matter. And I know when that happens, it uh, also involves or allows me to spend more time around you. And Corey recollected a, the situation at the Open Championship this year where I said just a very f brief few words. We have a code. Yeah, we have yeah, a code. code. And I gave him the code and he knew, pay yeah. attention. We, and you may, <laughs> pay you attention may to everything that yeah. you say. <laughs> there, uh, we were, I think the first time we used it, I think we were at the Masters. We were at the Masters. And I saw well, Pete. Thank you, that's flattering. Yeah. I, I saw Pete Callen and Cameron was passing and I was like, Pete Callen's kind of a dude. And I, if you ask me what a dude means, I don't know that I could articulate exactly what it means, but you kind of know what a dude is. And then 
we, that's kind of a code that we use for someone that's his we hold in reverence yeah exactly yes. that's a really good way to say it you and and, and he yeah he came up to me we were at port rush and he was like that's the first surfer thing you guys have said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go see yeah. we can fit it yeah. well no no yeah. and Kara was like Kara was like no yeah. if you, you want to do you just got your first one there you just stood up on your first wave <laughs> I love it yeah. yeah yeah again I don't know yeah. what it means but yeah he was like this is a dude you need to go hang out with this guy for a little while I also feel like we have a responsibility in what we do to share a little bit and you know when we like people we want to share and you like to do that as well one of the more common questions that we get from altus clients and listeners is how do i spin it like a tour player well the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves visit vokey.com to see the spin research that bob vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Just speculating why you two guys get along the way that you do is that we try to be very holistic in how we approach coaching and try to make sure that we're, you know, there's so many different elements that influence what that score is at the end of the day. And we want to make sure that we're doing our part to, you know, influence as much as we can. And I I read a little bit or maybe heard in that podcast about the wheel and multiple spokes in the wheel. So I just want to give you opportunity to elaborate a little bit on what that wheel is and that it's not just the technical, but there's all those other spokes that you're looking at. Yeah, it's really interesting. First of all, I have a young lady that I work with for a long, long time, not that has worked with us in our business as far as coaching her, although she was a fine player as well, too. And she, about three or four years ago, she said, you know, people drive me crazy all the time with what the wheel is. And and number two, what's your payment plan with your players? And I'm like, so people get so caught up in that, you know? And so she goes, why don't you share it? I think it's going to help everybody. So basically the wheel for me is, uh, I'm flying from someplace to someplace and I'm thinking about all these things that I have going on in my mind and all these things I'm thinking about to run both our, the business I'm running at the time and to coach. And my computer needed to be debooted. And at that time, I just would make notes like bullet point notes on a legal pad. So I fill up two or three legal pads with all these things I'm thinking about in bullet points. And then it takes me... I don't know, let's say it took me two months to deboot everything on a couple trips. And uh, then I read back over them and I realized that most of the things I wrote down, I didn't remember what the bullet point was and I have a pretty retentive mind. Mm -hmm. So then I started to realize that what I thought about was all these things that felt like I was like kind of claustrophobic with my thoughts that what was I really thinking about? So then I went through and I started to get like 10 things out of all the things that I wrote to figure out three legal pads. I didn't count the words, but there were thousands of them. (laughs) And there was really about 10 things that were making us and I go. And so I put those as my spokes and then I realized how I could manage one of them or, and then two of them and then three of them. And then all the way through, I had all 10 And they were all over the board, like, and surprisingly enough, golf instruction wasn't one of them. Like, that's a given. I feel like that's our talent, you know. I feel like I could teach Mrs. Habakamp or, you know, I could teach Tiger Woods. And I don't mean that, you know, too presumptuous as well, too. But those 10 things were basically my spokes and my job was to keep them straight. 
So every time that I felt a little discombobulated, I realized that I was thinking about all those other things that were on the paper. And so I basically did a cleanse for my body and I run on like 10 spokes. So at that time I was exposed to a bunch of young junior players, you know, and they were all very good. And we were starting to cultivate them and, you know, we were coming about it from an instructional angle. But what I really started to do is I had to realize in these young people from either their parental influences or their peers' influences or the way that they were, how we could shape their spokes at an early age. You know, I think you've been around Patrick enough. You can tell him he's running on not very many spokes and they're pretty straight. Mm -hmm. And so some people we wrote it down for, some people we had them go through the same exercise Actually, the player I talked to on the phone today, he asked me what to do. And I said, you need to start writing down what you're thinking about. And then you can't tell you how refreshing and enlightening it is to also go through all these thoughts and go, well, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. And cross it out and realize that we're pretty simplistic in the way that we accomplish the things that we do. So that's the wheel. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's a wheel for Amy Alcott. There's a wheel for John Cook. There's a wheel for Paul Goidos. There's a wheel for John Merrick. There's a wheel for John Mallinger. There's a wheel for Pete Tomasulo. There's a wheel for Luke Liss. There's a wheel for Patrick Cantlay. There's a wheel for Max Homa. There's a wheel for Mo Martin. There's a wheel for these four juniors that I coach, you know, and there's a wheel for that's the way that we review our coworkers at work. And so it's something that we live by by a daily basis. And it's kind of a lot of times it's like the elephant in the role because it, for a lot of people, it's not even tangible. They know that I know what the spokes are. They know what the spokes are and they haven't written it down. Other people are actually walking around with like this wheel with their spokes on there and their job is to keep it straight. There's a quote from Ryan Holiday and the stillness is the key. And it's talking about yeah, reflection and journaling. And he said that that act purges the mind of agitation. Yeah. And I just love that quote. And I think that's what you're speaking to. And you brought up all those different players right there. And I think another reputation that you have is that you have real relationships with players that, that have had a lot of longevity, maybe more than the, the coach that is offering a swing fix every once in a while to fix things. And so I'll ask the question carefully because I know that you don't do this. It's not a conscious decision that you're taking these actions, but it happens more organically because you're a great coach and you're care for the person. But if looking back on like building those relationships, what actions do you feel like, or what things do you feel like you do differently that have built these really special relationships? Well, be it right or wrong on what you said, I haven't had a lot of success at tour player coming to see me and helping them and fixing them. You know, you're untying knots and excuse me, you might not have got to see them play as well as that they can play. And you're trying to figure out a recipe for them. Most tour player coaches get tour players after they become tour players, you know. We've homegrown everybody that we've been with, be it right or wrong, the way that we've done it, but we've homegrown and they've had long, you know, successful, in a lot of ways, fruitful careers with way more to come. And it's got easier. Now we're now on four generations. Mm -hmm. So it's got easier through the generations. So I think that part of it kind of explains that. And then the second part of your question. Yeah. Well, I'm going to 
interrupt myself here. Okay. What's the interaction between... <laughs> You're the first person yeah. I'd ever say that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to skip part of my question that's, because what you just said right You're becoming more the dude for me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, oh, that's all you need to know now. What's yeah. the interaction between those generations of players? Are they spending time with each other? I would argue, and I don't like to argue. I think golf is a game that you don't argue with. You agree with it. And life is the same way. But I would argue that it'd be hard to say whether John Cook made Patrick Cantlay better or Patrick Cantlay made John Cook win double figure times on the Champions Tour because there's just a beauty that bounces back and forth. And I think that thing, when you think about it, that that thing came from Venturi and Nelson through John Cook, you know, into me, through to our players, down to somebody, you know, that's here, then somebody that's not here anymore or three players that aren't here anymore because Byron and Ben and Ken aren't. That's pretty amazing. Sure is. So I think when you build that back and forth, and I think you can't, you can't really put, you can't put a dollar figure on the word culture where I said that we've kind of built, and I think it just continues to live. One of those elements of culture that you spoke to, Corey, asked on is involvement vertically in across generations and rising tides floating all boats, both in a right. north and also south direction. In if we had to go back and rephrase homegrown to home cooking, what are the other ingredients? Is, is there one or two more that you would list, you would say, more specifically within culture are so important that that's allowed you through four generations now to have success in growing these players into being world-class? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an interesting word, and it immediately makes in my mind think about when we were talking about, are you 100% sure what you're going to say? You have to be careful in this situation not to say, hey, so-and-so is doing that, and you should do that, because we're all completely different, mm -hmm. you know? And I think if you gave a golf lesson, Corey, or you gave one Cam and I gave one, we gave it all to the same person, they would walk away from scratching their head and going, wow, they got three different things and there's nothing the matter with that. Laws aren't going to change. Principles can change a little bit. Preferences are a big deal. So I think we've done a really nice job of remembering preferences and remembering that Patrick Cantlay and Luke List are very, very different, you know? And when they're both going, they look like freight trains and they make me smile, you know? And so my job is to keep them moving like freight trains, you know? Go deeper into the, that, the opportunity costs that we all face when we're, uh, whether it's standing in front of the 13-year-old or standing in front of the 26-year-old that's playing on tour. When you're working through your decision tree and deciding what's the next best course of action to develop this particular player or get them back on the rails if, they've, if they're off the rails. Yeah, like I was saying, it's been easy in our nature because, you know, we built that pyramid with the younger players. So they had all the bottom floors. And so the top floors were pretty easy to, you know, replace bricks. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get a tour player, like I never coached Davis Love. I only know about his background a little bit. Obviously, super admirable. It all seemed like a special player to me. I watched him play a lot of golf. We got to spend a lot of time with Fred in our life. Fred was up at our property last weekend spending time. He's a big friend of Pat. Patrick and we have a great relationship together. So Davis and Fred spent a lot of time together. So I watched Davis a lot. So I used to say, well, wonder if Davis called me and said, Hey, Jamie, I want you to help me with my game. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I really realized I couldn't help him with this game. His dad taught him and, you know, then he had, you know, other instructors and he already was a beautiful player. And what was I going to do? You know, I loved his routine. Maybe he didn't putt as good as he could have, but I loved his routine. I loved the way he went about it. it. Looked like he could win on every golf course. 
look like he should win major championships, and he did. Look like he should win a players' championship, and he did. You know, I think he has 20 wins on the PGA Tour, so that's a pretty good career, you know. And so then when I got to the point where, in a humble manner, when I said, well, I really couldn't help him, then help me stay clear on what I needed to do. But that doesn't mean I can't help somebody that I have the opportunity to do it our or my way. Mm-hmm. And we have and we are. Sure, sure. You spoke to the differences between a lot of those individuals that you're coaching or the 10 individuals that you're coaching. Looking at it broadly, we are always having the conversation. And the reason why this podcast exists is to figure out what are the commonalities between these really, really high performing players. So even though they're going about it, maybe different ways, you've obviously witnessed them all perform at a high level. What are those things that you would call those? They're, they're playing superpowers that kind of tie them all together. I don't think there is one. Okay. Yeah. I think they're all so different in the way that they go about it. Here's a great story. And I think I've told Cam this too, but certainly good for your listeners. Mo Martin averages for her career in the high eighties in fairway accuracy. And she now hits the golf ball 20 yards farther. So she's really effective. She's a tiny little girl, you know, super strong and very tiny. I've all said, somebody told me, hey, you coach the smallest major champion ever. And I would say, well, actually, I coach the major champion ever with the biggest heart, <laughs> not the smallest stature. So Luke List and Mo are hitting balls one day in our field. We call it our lab, our field, which is just this beautiful spot at Virginia. It goes right into the water, and we're hitting shag balls kind of in these areas. And it's one of those beautiful mornings when it's just Mo and Luke and I, and we're kind of laughing and giggling and hitting shots and having great practices. And I'm working back and forth between our players, which is common for us to do. And um, Luke is hitting these seven irons that are going 210 yards straight up in the air. They're not curving, and they look like a bomb when they're smacked, you know, only he's swinging effortless. And Mo's watching him, and she goes, wow, Luke, what's that club? And Luke goes, it's a seven iron. And, and, and Mo says, I can use a curse word on the show. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Holy shit, you know, um, I can't believe that sweet little girl said that. But anyways, um, holy shit, Luke, what club is that? And he goes, it's a seven iron, Mo. And she goes, how far is that going? And I go, far, Mo. And she goes, how far? And I go, well, you don't want to look and track that's on. And she goes, you know, Luke, I have 13 clubs in my bag that don't go over 200 yards. And Luke looks at her and goes, I have 13 clubs in my bag that don't go under 200 yards. (laughs) So that's a big difference right there, right? Yeah. And it sounds weird, but I like when Luke hits straighter, but I don't need him to hit 88% of his fairways if he did golf with him fair. Yeah. You know? What do you think the factors are that separate the best, given they're so unique, from the next level, the players that are stuck on mini tours, or even the players that don't get to the mini tours out of college? They know what their spokes are. They know how to manage them. They know how to keep them straight. And they have a bunch of people helping them do that. You know, in this day and age, there's physios and sushi chefs and everything in between. And that's not critical about anything, but I think everybody has a team and they stay in the right spot. And I think, you know, we're at the point now where there's so many good players, you know, there's probably 10,000 people that could play golf at the highest level on the PGA tour, but they got to figure out how to do it. And those special weekend afternoons when you're at a major championship and you got a chance to win and you're standing out there, the people that are hitting balls in the driving range at that time, they fall in that category. Nobody kind of flukes their way into that situation. Sure. You no know? doubt about that. Yeah. And that's the cool thing about it. And, you know, I think what happens is if they fall out of that realm, they normally change their recipe because of the almighty legal, legal tender 
<laughs> or something that makes them change the recipe and then they fall out. Our job is to keep them so the recipe is the right recipe for them all the time. Yeah. I have a question on coach's eye and talent identification. Four generations, maybe more now, you've seen golfers come to your lesson tee for coaching and you've been able to witness players develop into world-class players. Is there something that you are looking for? How do you identify that special something? It's an X factor for sure. And I don't know, but I know, you know, I've known every time. We're going to turn you upside down yeah. and shake it out. <laughs> no, I, I know. It's just looking at it, you know, and we've, you know, I've told the parents, I've driven over to the parents to see him and saying, Hey, he's got it. Mm -hmm. How do you know? I don't know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier now after picking them all those times, we haven't been wrong, you know, if he's listening to this, he'll probably laugh. You know, I didn't think Calcavecchia was going to turn out to be as great a player as he turned out to be. And he's a great player right after I thought that, you know, he won a British open like two or three years later. He's probably the only one I've been wrong about. That seems like a big statement. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But every time that I've ever seen one and I've seen him when they were really young, I'm like, you know, he was with Patrick when he was seven, right? Yeah. And just all kinds of different players just seeing, you know, saw Ken Tanagawa when he was really, really young, play at Virginia Country Club, you know, in a junior event, you know, and now he's one of the better players on the Champions Tour. And he went away for 30 years. I didn't even know what happened to the guy. So whatever it is, you can tell. Mm -hmm. And I also thought when I was playing football, like I'd be driving down, you know, past a football stadium and there'd be a stand sound like game going on. I could pick out the best player there. So who knows what that is. Can we reverse engineer the answer to that question? So say we've got player at a high level, playing at a high level, but there was a reason why Cal Quebecchi, obviously he was playing at a high level, but you weren't predicting the success that he had. So if we were going to reverse engineer the answer to that question, are there things that we would term, we would call them rate limiters? Like if this is happening, then the chances of you getting reaching your potential or reaching the highest levels are slim to none. So are, is there a list of things that you have in your mind that says, man, if you're doing this or if this is a trait that you have, then this is going to limit how successful you can be. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. I've got something I think you can probably pull on, though. In some writings, some interviews, and the podcast, you speak so many times to Poise and Patrick's Corey's going to love this word, equanimity. Oh, that's my favorite word. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are, there are certain things that maybe not specific to all of them that they do possess. Ideally in this game, though, that's, you know, I might be the oldest person to watch Tiger as closely as I've watched him for as long as I've watched him. You know, he started practicing at Hartwell Golf Park where I putted at when I was a kid. And the guy that taught me how to play golf, not how to move the motion, but how to move the ball from point A to point B, which is something we haven't even touched on yet because you do got to move the ball from point A to point B. <laughs> it's not just swing. And That'll be our stroke. next subject, so <laughs> yeah, I'll exactly, tee it up for you. Exactly right. But anyways, you know, I got to see him when he was four years old, you know, play. And then one of my 
head golf professional at my club, played a bunch of golf with him when he was seven, eight, nine, and 10, used to drive him to the course and said Tiger would fall asleep on the way home. And then everybody knows about the John Cook and Tiger relationship. And, you know, we've got to, it's been surreal to watch him forever and ever and ever and ever. So would you teach somebody to be Tiger like that? I don't know. You know, I remember seeing the fist bumps when he was winning the amateurs or the juniors. And I was thinking, I don't know if that fits in. But it's like took a whole generation to that spot. Mm -hmm. So I think you imagine golf at that time as, you know, you got this poised guy that just cruises along, you know, maybe he is Fred Couples because there's only one of those, but you kind of see that they all act a different way, you know? I mean, I know that this, like, I never thought that I'd see a kid like Jordan talking to his golf ball in every shot, mm -hmm. but it works for him and I like it and I get it and I understand that, you know? Patrick, you know, is very, very misunderstood. He's super bright, super intelligent, got an unbelievable sense of humor, you know, got a great way about him. He's a lot more low key than people realize on him. They think he looks like a, he's an assassin out there, you know, cause he's not saying anything. So I think we misread the way that they are and going back to it. I'm sorry. I couldn't give you a more definitive answer, but they're all different in the way they go about it. And it's your job as the coach to figure out what one of their strengths is going to make them as well as play as well as they could. If I would have told you that Brooks Kepka was going to be who he was and I told you his background or DJ was going to be who he was 30 years ago, you wouldn't have picked that. Mm -hmm. And now those guys are, you know, two of the best players in the world. Mm -hmm. Good points. Very good points. Where does, where does players' confidence come from? Where players' confidence, where does it come from? Knowing the spokes again, knowing what they're doing and how they're doing and seeing effective results, you know. I know what I'm doing in the course of my day in order to make me effective. You know what you're doing in the course of the day and players are in that too. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny. You know, I spent a lot of time on Tuesday mornings at tour events. I sound like I'm so old in this podcast. But <laughs> I said you were wise. Yeah. You yeah. <laughs> spent a lot of time on Tuesday mornings being the first guy out there. I love it. You know, reps are setting the putters up around the green. Mm -hmm. Grass is getting mowed. Golf course is in pristine shape. They've been waiting to have this tour event there. We haven't been there since last year, kind of looking around, waiting for our player to come out and start their warm up so they can go do their practice round. And all of a sudden you see 25 guys that miss the cut and they start looking at putters, mm -hmm. you know, and then they're talking to agents and reps and they're trying to figure out all these different equations of what Chasing they want to do. They? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you watch the top 10, 20, 30 players and they come in and they start doing their gig. I love that word. You can spell it frontwards and backwards the same way. <laughs> um, they start doing their gig or their system and their gig and their system doesn't deviate. You know, I wash rinse repeat. Yeah. yeah. It, when you and I see each other at a tournament and you walk away, I know where you're going. When you see me, you know what I'm doing. You know, everything kind of has a sequence to it. So, and I think that that's what you're trying to do is keep create a sequence that works for the player. Yeah. What wisdom importance would you share with our listeners that are out there that are developing players, uh, whether that be junior collegiate or uh, developing professionals, that relates to the comment you made before, playing the game? Yeah, I mean, I go out and watch players all the time. Like somebody will ask me, say, hey, can you watch this player play? And I'm like, well, I can't coach them, but I will watch them play. So send me some of a video of them playing in a tournament, a couple halls. Just send it from in front of them. Don't let them know that you're videoing them. Let me watch. It's amazing how players will get on a tee. They don't have a defined place that they're hitting it. They don't understand that there's land that's sloping from right to left. They don't understand that there's wind that's moving from right to left. 
They'd understand that the hole is playing slightly uphill on the first shot and slightly downhill on the second shot. They don't understand that there's four good hole locations on the green, but they're using the fifth one and sucker hole location. And then you just watch them play and they're, you know, they're setting up for disaster because they're not playing the game the right way. Mm-hmm. In the card game, that would be just like showing me your cards, you know, and that's just that we're going to play cards against each other. You got to go about it the right way. So I think I, I got really lucky with this guy named Chuck Wallace, who unfortunately passed away. That taught me to play when I was young and he was really good on wind and angles and, you know, air being colder and air being heavier and all the things that we do like on a daily basis, you know, tomorrow morning when we're, you know, getting Luke and Patrick ready to play, the ball's going to go a little farther out here depending on the temperature. And it's super important, especially at Luke's speed. Luke is at that speed, you know, 122, 123, where that can change things in a minute from 15 to 20 yards, which can change a tournament. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's emphasized enough in what we do. Now there's guys that are, you know, analyzing how players play or what they do on this hole, but how does your player play? You know, Jordan and Patrick, they play a lot of golf together. They play golf totally different, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, uh, I think the idea is to figure out how your player can get around in the best, best score that he can. And isn't that the nature of the game? Speak a little bit more to, because I'm just curious, my own, selfishly, I'm curious as to kind of what your priorities are Monday through Wednesday. And you may not think of it that way. I know that I, I'm like pretty structured in the, the way that I, I kind of have objectives that I've listed out and I realize that not everybody is, but do you have a kind of game plan going in for Monday through Wednesday? Because we said that the players that are searching for solutions are seldom the ones holding the trophy at the end of the week. Are there things that uh, outside of just kind of an understanding for the tactical part of how you want to attack a golf course, are there other things that you're trying to accomplish Monday through Wednesday to prep a player as best you can? Yeah, it could de- depend. You know, I have a guy at work that's looking at the stats a whole lot. You know, I'm talking to our players. Like the texting is probably the best thing you do with your players. I, there's something about texting where you write Raleigh what's going on. Yeah. I mean, we communicated through text whether I was going to end up here or you're going to end up there or what we're going to do to do this tonight, you know. So there's something about that. I like the way that texts are. So I kind of like to feel that out. I like to stay in the gig or in the system. You know, one of our players, we're going to do an emphasis on scoring on five pars and more wedge work this work. My, you know, Venezuelan girl, Veronica Felibert, who might be the best swing that I coach. She's playing in the Symmetra Tour Championship this week. You know, we have a pretty good plan for her this week. She's played the golf course a bunch of times. She knows what to do, how to see it. So I'll monitor that from afar. So I think that kind of changes week in and week out. I probably overcoached that a little bit in the 80s, probably got the hang of it in the 90s and probably coached that just about the right way more in the millennium, secondly, secondly the last decade. How do you, how do you, or surely the last decade, how do you overcoach me. that piece of it? Uh, just do this, do that, do this, do that, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Versus making suggestions? Mm, at, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I like Corey and I like Cam and I like Jamie a lot. We're all sitting here and talking. We're not hitting any shots, guys. <laughs> so, but we want to tell them how to hit the shot and how, what to do. And it is a game. When you're asking me what I like about surfing, like, I don't have a surfing coach. You know? <laughs> I want to go out there and kind of feel it. And, you know, when my dad was making that comment about me hitting all those screens, nobody was really telling me to keep my left arm straight or to do this or that. I kind of figured out how to do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. be really interesting with a really good player if you, did, if you took him and you didn't teach him anything except for how to play golf. And then you took somebody and you gave him the best technique in the world who would end up at a better spot. I asked my, that one, myself that one all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about that one now. Yeah. 
What does the mission map look like 10 years from now? In the next 10 years, you hope that... I don't know, kind of in the same mentality that you've heard us talk about the whole time. I'm not a goal setter for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not an age guy. I feel really, really young, yeah. you know. You I, play I, young. Yeah, <laughs> and I try to try to think young and all that we do. So the idea is to keep getting better at the process and let the process dictate the bottom line. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of goes in back into the wheel, goes back into the how we charge players the whole nine yards, you know. Yeah, for sure. Normally, we wrap up these conversations and we say, hey, we really want to point our listeners to learn more from you and to social media. <laughs> and I know, and, and so I'm not wrapping it up because this is a question that I have for you. I know that you're not on social media. No Twitter, no Instagram, correct? Yeah, this is going to crack you guys up, okay? No, I, I love it. I, I'm, I'm but it's gonna intrigued. Crack you, it's going to crack you up. So I get this call from somebody yesterday and they want to do the same similar thing here. And they say... Uh, you know, you, you have a sponsor? And I say, I don't. <laughs> and they said, uh, Is that company? You have a club company sponsor? And I say, I don't. Do you play a certain set of golf clubs? Yeah, I pay for them. <laughs> and they said, uh, You have like a travel sponsor? And I said, No, I have a Starwood American Express card. <laughs> and they said, uh, Do you have uh, an Instagram account that people can take lessons from you? And I said, No, I don't. And they said, Have you ever done a video? And I said, well, people have done videos of me, but I've never done one. Have you ever written a book? No, I haven't done that, you know? And so at the end, the guy says, well, how do you make a living? (laughs) (laughs) But being really good. So anyways, at at the end of the day, just, you know, the social media is an interesting thing for me. You know, if you don't mind me saying, nobody says on social media, I got a hemorrhoid or a pimple. (laughs) (laughs) They're just all I'm going to be first, just for you. (laughs) They're just all all saying, look at me. And I'm not criticizing anybody, but it just doesn't work. And, you know, we're in the public forum and, you know, you want to have some privacy. So I like the point of that about that. And people can get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you. And I know that companies are making, you know, we used to not say billion, but making billions of dollars in that avenue right now. But that's not working best for us. And uh, I've actually had suggestions with some of our players that, you know, don't have to have social media. It wasn't helping them. Right. You know, I have one of our players, I'm not going to mention their name, but we haven't put their phone away. And, you know, $7 million later, you know, that's been a pretty good decision because they don't wow. have their phone in their hand. So it's a different world. I'm not trying to act old, but that's just the way that we feel. And that's no, not to criticize I, I asked anybody. The, I asked the question out of like genuine intrigue at that, because I know that we have conversations you know, the balance between the commercial side of our business and the fact that Cameron has to point to that guy and say, Hey, you don't know that guy, but he's a dude. And then I have to go figure that out on my own because there is no other way for me to learn that information. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then at the same time, uh, I think we both kind of feel that some of the things that you feel obliged to do don't always feel authentic to what we do and, and kind of what's normal and what's expected. Like you said, Nobody's nobody's sharing the hard truths on Instagram. They're telling all the things that they think they're supposed to. Yeah, say. they're not yeah. showing the worst swing. And right, a lot exactly. of times, you know, I know yeah. a teacher that's shooting two hundred swings a day, and then I all see the best one. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and at the at the end of the day, stuff like this, like I've enjoyed getting to know you, Corey and Cam. I think the world of you, and I think we have a lovely relationship. And I'm doing this because I want to do it with you guys. It's yeah. fun to sit here and talk about the game and talk about golf, and if it helps some people more about that, you know. Exactly. And, um, I think that we in this world, we worry about monetarily once you say business and it's, oh my God, I got to make money, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, 
Yeah, but I think we're all good enough at what we do that you're going to make some money. You got to figure out what medium that you want to do it and how you want to do it. If I was just coaching people by sending me videos, that wouldn't be my forte. That doesn't mean somebody else can't do it, but that's not my forte. And each person in their pathway professionally has to find that, find yeah. that passion, find that purpose and possibly uses their North Star, what brings them joy. And the joy for you seems to emanate in the relationship side, seems to emanate in developing a culture where everyone is involved in it together. And that's why you've expressed so many times in the conversation, we, correct? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And at the end of the day, however you choose to make your dollars is your choice. That's the beautiful thing about this country and the world that we live in. You get the ability to do what you want, but that's the way that I think that it goes about best. You try to coach this game the best that you can. You use all your experience, all your wisdom. You try to be on top of the game all the time. And at the end of the day, that hopefully they play well and you go about it that way. That's Jamie Milligan. Yeah, you spent an hour of your time with us. And I know that like many of the conversations that we've had, they come from a selfish place and that mm -hmm. we want to sit down and, and hear some of the wisdom and we're genuinely interested in what you have to say and really appreciate you sharing with us. So thank we, you very much. We owe you more than you can possibly imagine. And we'll start with dinner yeah. at some point in the future. <laughs> all right, cool. I'm flattered to be invited. Thanks a lot, Chance. Keep doing all the good things that you're doing as well. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. Wow.